You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. Last episode, we talked about something called a shadow capital. Where are the decisions that shape our world really being made? Is the American seat of power Washington, D.C., our political capital? Is it New York, our financial capital, or Hollywood, our kind of cultural capital? Or is our capital of power Silicon Valley? I sat down with Catherine Boyle, who originally got me thinking about all this a couple years back in an op-ed she wrote for the Washington Post. This is also where she used to work back before she moved out here to San Francisco and started her career in venture. This came up in our last episode, but it's especially important for the conversation we're going to have today. Because in our last episode, we only briefly talked about the media, the press, places like, for example, the Washington Post and the New York Times, and we were both pretty soft on the issue. Mostly, we were focused on the ways in which Silicon Valley was wielding power. But the media also wields tremendous power. And under this kind of vice grip of COVID-19, both Catherine and I have changed our views on that institutional power quite a lot. So we decided to do a little sequel and uh, excuse the audio quality. I have been recording from my closet. We started our conversation with the death of Kobe Bryant and the controversy surrounding the ensuing media coverage. We talked about polarization, the new dominance of personality-driven news, Kara Swisher versus Balaji, of course, and the epically bad COVID-19 coverage of Vox and Recode, and the mononarrative. Does Rush Limbaugh need the New York Times? From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. We started this conversation talking about Shadow Capital's last episode with Catherine Boyle. Hi, thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. So I think I loved that conversation. It got a great reaction online. I think people found it really fascinating, just the idea of, you know, what is the nature of power? Who is in charge? Where do they live? How do they work? And then how should they govern? If they are in charge, how should they govern? And the whole framing of, of that episode, of our last episode, was really Silicon Valley is the shadow capital of certainly America, if not the entire world at this point. I, I thought it was like pretty critical. I mean, obviously we both work in the technology industry. I, I really think that the technology industry is amazing. I think it's a force for tremendous good in the world. I'm constantly, def- yeah, constantly defending it online. But I, I think it is absolutely worth asking these questions of like, how exactly are they governing how transparent are they? How are they related to us now? Like, I mean, the world has changed and I think we need to acknowledge that and address some of these issues. But there was one point in the episode where we talked a bit about the media. And honestly, this episode was recorded, I think, like six or seven months ago. Uh, this was a, a long time ago for both of us. And, and at that time, yeah. And, and at that time, I mean, certainly you were a little more positive on the media in the episode, but even I was, I mean, back then at that time, I was really, really focused on social media censorship, which I think today is actually still a thing, especially in, in the context of COVID-19. We can get into that in a minute as well. But my views on the media have changed tremendously. I do think that they are a fount of power. I think that it's worth addressing that and talking about that as well. And I really would love to just have a conversation about that now after COVID-19 with you, someone who has worked for one of the preeminent journalistic institutions of the world, uh, who now works in tech. And I think, again, is just in this really interesting intersection of media, tech, and the government. Yeah, no, and I've been, you know, my views have, have evolved as well. I'd actually say they've accelerated in terms of viewing the self-immolation of the press as something that is just not going away. 
I very much believe we are going to see a movement to personality-driven journalism, independent journalism, away from institutions. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The best way to describe what's happening in the media is actually an incident that happened right before COVID. Um, and to me, this sort of encapsulated everything that is wrong with institutional media at the moment that I think even institutions don't see. So there was an episode that happened at the Washington Post in January, the day that Kobe Bryant died. A well-known journalist has about 55, 60,000 followers on Twitter who's a political reporter named Felicia Sanmez tweeted out a story in the Daily Beast, just the headline. And it said, Kobe Bryant's disturbing rape case, the DNA evidence, the accuser's story, and the half confession. I was watching this in real time. Within about five minutes, I've never seen something get ratioed as fast as it did. Comfortably Smug, who's a well-known internet personality, retweeted it <laughs> and immediately said, this is the Washington Post. What's incredible about this is I actually know the backstory of why this reporter treated what she did. She's a, a well-known reporter who has talked very openly about a sexual assault case that happened to her a few years ago in Beijing when she was reporting there. Uh, a story came out in Reason Magazine that told the story of the, the perpetrator's perspective on her alleged assault. And it caused a huge firestorm in, in journalism and actually culminated maybe six months ago in uh, a kind of a back and forth between her and a well-known reporter named Caitlin Flanagan, who writes for The Atlantic. So Felicia became sort of this outspoken voice on sexual assault issues. Um, and maybe say two or 3% of her followers on Twitter follow her because she has spoken about these issues publicly in a way that many reporters have not. Now, if you are coming to Twitter on the day that Kobe Bryant dies, and you see a very well-known political reporter at the Washington Post tweeting just headlines about a rape case, you're not coming with the context that a few people have on her Twitter feed, that she's actually someone who speaks about these other issues as well. And what's amazing about what was happening in the background as this was unfolding is that Marty Barron, um, who is the executive editor of the Washington Post, emailed Felicia during this time and said, and, and this is almost prophetic, please stop tweeting, you're hurting this institution. What is incredible is then ensued a long thing where the reporters at the Washington Post took Felicia's side and said the editors were limiting free speech. Of course, she should be allowed to criticize Kobe Bryant. This is why we're reporters. The management at the, at the Washington Post basically said there's limits to free speech on Twitter. You work for this institution. People are reading this as a political reporter commenting, not as someone who actually experienced um, assault herself. And so it caused this huge firestorm where it was very clear that institutions can't even control the individual reporters and what they're saying on behalf of the institution. I think they could control them, but right now we do not have a culture of that. And I think separate from what you think about if like, I don't know, the day or the day after the horrific death of a man and his daughter, who many people across the country find like an empowering heroic figure, regardless of, of that, certainly whatever she says as a journalist for the Washington Post is going to be seen as the Washington Post speaking. The journalists both want to use the name of the Washington Post, certainly in this case, I think broadly this happens at the New York Times, at CNN. They want to use the names of these journalistic institutions to bolster their opinion and credibility. But then they become really, really angry when they're told, hey, you're speaking on behalf of this institution by, you know, the plebes like myself, like, oh, the New York Times says. They're like, the New York Times didn't say it. You know, I said it. It's like, how do you not see that there's bleed here? And this is kind of the moral of the story is that journalists see themselves as people with multiple audiences 
And they see themselves as personalities now because that is the way they've been forced to go in order to, to rise in their career. The internet sees them as institutions. And so this is, I think, the big thing that's actually going to lead to the destruction of media. There's a lot of forces. It's very hard to be a journalist right now. But if you are trying to get ahead in your career, you have to have a following. To get a following, you have to be interesting. Uh, to be interesting online, you have to, to be, be a little polarizing. More, you have to be polarizing, absolutely. And so there's absolutely no way for institutions to win because you can't just tweet out story links um, and be a very stoic person in the way that it used to be where you're just a byline and the story's written in a very kind of 10 foot back sort of high level way. The people who are the most valuable journalists right now are the people who are interesting on Twitter. They have large followings, they're getting book deals and every journalist who wants to be able to support themselves and be able to pay rent knows they have to be a lot more extreme than they used to be 10 years ago. I wonder how people would even react to it if folks were just honest about that. What I find just endlessly frustrating is when someone in the media will come at me with an opinion, with what is clearly opinion, just either in the tenor of the reporting or on Twitter, and then step back and be like, journalists are important. We're the arbiters of truth. Like we're fighting what democracy dies in darkness. And it's like this, you have to pick one. What was their uh, previous slogan? So the Washington Post previous slogan was, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Meaning if you don't get the newspaper delivered, you don't get it, which is just the silliest thing. It was very 1980s, 1990s, but at least it wasn't overwrought with this sort of like, we are- Democracy we are, dies in darkness. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, are you Batman? What is happening here? This is insane. Let's step back a little bit. I recently got into it with one of the, I guess, tech columnists. He's not quite an editorialist. He's not quite a journalist. Actually, I always get his name wrong. He's like the not as good Mike Isaac. He had some ridiculous column, didn't like it. I criticized it. Someone responded, how dare you imply that he is getting paid for this? The substance of my original criticism was just that he's literally paid to attack the tech industry. That's what his job is. He's a professional sort of like anti-tech writer. I mean, he's literally paid by the New York Times to do this. But what I thought was really interesting was the way this person in my mentions was like, how dare you imply he's making money off of this? He's speaking truth to power. And I thought, holy shit. So I quote tweeted it. And I was like, New York Times columnists are not speaking truth to power. They are power. This is a fount of power. Like, they control the media narrative. That's tremendous power. You know, it, it's interesting because I actually think there's a historical context for this. The profile of a journalist, you know, this was a kind of a working middle class job. This was a step up if you were an immigrant from somewhere. There's a whole history in the 60s and the 70s of the types of people that went into journalism were sort of these neighborhood people that cared about society. And it was a step up in their life. You know, a lot of journalists didn't go to college. It was a, a, a vocational trade. And the mindset of the people going into journalism, 100%, it was speak truth to power. It was, you know, this sort of like, we have to make sure that we're keeping track of institutions because we've been oppressed because we're, you know, this immigrant community or this working class community that really has, hasn't ever had power. That changed in the 90s. Journalism was not really a prestigious profession until really the kind of professionalization of it, you know, it, it, then it became something that kids out of, you know, Harvard and Stanford wanted to go into. And now I'd say that, that by and large, it's one of these very elite professions. You're not getting paid a lot of money. 
So you kind of have to already have money going into it or be okay with not making a lot of money. And it's offering you status. It's a high status job, even just as an editor for nonfiction, saying I worked at Penguin Books. I made no money, but people were always like, they would lean in and say, oh, that's cool. It's a sexy job. It's one of these things where it's like, everyone's like, wow, like, wouldn't it be cool to be a journalist? Very few people get to practice it. Very few people get to do it. And it has a lot of status. And you know, throughout history, we've said the pen is mightier than the sword. So 100%, I agree with you that that this is a position of power. I actually think they're losing power though, since the revocation of the fairness doctrine, uh, since even the advent of talk radio, what's interesting about what's happening now and why I think there's just this sort of ridiculous sort of, you know, last cry of these institutions that's almost like a, like a fainting almost, is like they realize that the power that they used to have is, is no longer there. And that's why I think you're seeing this blowback from journalists fighting with tech people on Twitter. I mean, I would have never expected to see the kind of, it's almost like people are going through a divorce. You know, it's like people are not even listening to each other's arguments anymore. And it's just like, you're criticizing the media and therefore you are bad, or you're a journalist and therefore you are bad. It's reached this fever pitch, but it's not something new. I mean, the 80s, I'd say, was when it really began, when it was really, you know, the radio wave sort of became this, this beacon of anti-press, anti-media, anti-New York Times. And what people don't realize is that half the country grew up on that. They really seem to think Trump did this. And I think to myself, wow, I've had a problem with the media for a long time and so have most of my friends. So this is just people have a problem with other people talking about them in a way that's not true or that they think, you know, misrepresents their work. Certainly the tech industry has felt this way for a long time. And I imagine anybody who's ever been written about feels this way to some degree, like, wow, they didn't really get it right. This is, I started thinking about this once I moved to San Francisco, I started working for Founders Fund. People loved to write about one of my colleagues and boss, Peter Thiel. And I know him very well. We're friends. He's an amazing person. And I would just watch people completely distort who he was online every day. I forget who first sort of made the point. This is a famous point where you read the news. It's a story about something you understand well. And you realize, wow, the journalist doesn't know anything about this. They have no idea what they're talking about. But then you turn the page, right? You click the next article. It's about politics or professional sports or science. And you think, oh, what an interesting article. I can't believe X, Y, or Z is happening. You completely forget that actually none of these people know what they're talking about. None of them are super intimately acquainted with the work. I actually think that that is a far more recent trend because of the business model. So when I was a reporter, there were firings left and right. Like the, this was pre-Bezos. Bezos bought the Washington Post in 2013. I left in 2014. But it was actually a great time to be a young reporter because so many people had been fired that as a 24, 25-year-old, I could cover big stories, write seven days a week. And I was 25. So there was like absolutely nothing in the world that I was a domain expert on. Yeah. Right. Like, like any 25-year-old writing for, for a major newspaper, like, yeah, you can, you can cover things from a bird's eye view, but the idea that I would be able to write something as good as someone who had worked at the Washington Post 30 years. I recently watched a movie called, just a little old movie called All the President's Men. Yeah. Um, this is a, a famous movie. It was what, like 1970s, Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman. It follows the process by which the Washington Post broke Watergate, just story after story after story after story. That's actually something I didn't realize, how, how many stories were, th were there. It was not just one bombshell story. It was like 20, 30 stories, this yeah. slow boil leading up to the president and his eventual resignation from office. So there were two things in that movie I just thought were 
wild, neither of which were main parts of the movie or even mentioned. It was, the movie was not about them. They were just so far into me because our media environment is now so different. And the first was, yes, they were definitely like, quote, speaking truth to power, but that was not at all the aesthetic of it. Like they knew they had a story. It was a good story. It was an important story. They had to tell it. They were chasing it, but they also wanted to break the story first before the New York Times. And they were very transparent about that, about like, this is the business of news and like, we want to win and be good at our jobs. But then number two, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman were these young guys in the movie. Yep. They almost were, were not even allowed, they, but, but by young, I mean, they were like early thirties and they, they were almost not even allowed to cover the story. They had to fight for it. They were surrounded in that press room by older guys. It was like guys in their fifties, sixties, all mentoring them, looking at the story, being like, ah, like this doesn't work for these reasons. You need these sources and just constantly breathing down their neck. And this is not even a media problem. I think this might just be a broader business problem as well. I mean, we see this in the tech industry. Everyone is young and that's great and energizing and invigorating. And there's tons of opportunity, but also like at some point you have to look around and wonder what it means to live in a world with zero mentorship. Today, we're just, it's like we have these young kids in college who enter the newsroom. It's like Lord of the Flies. I feel like I was at the Washington Post in a dying era when I still had, I, I actually sat next to, to Ben Bradley at a dinner once. He was very old, you know, had, had left the Washington Post, but still sort of loomed large in the mythology. And of course, he was the editor um, during Watergate that really mentored them. What was amazing about that film as well, as you saw, he was, you know, he's a war hero. He was this really rough and tumble guy. The things he said in the newsroom, you would never get away with saying today. The way he pushed those young guys, like the way he pushed them to keep on getting more sources, to get more certainty around their story. We're not going to press because you don't have the story yet. That is something that I do not think newspapers have the luxury of doing now. I, I still think there are mentors at places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. But from everything that I have seen and heard, you know, seen in my own experience and heard from my colleagues and friends who are still there, um, there is a major generational divide in the way that we should be practicing news. I think the people who, you know, are in their 50s and 60s that kind of came up in that generation of all the president's men and really understand what it takes to write a great story are pushing young people to do that. And I do not think that all the young people have the same sort of values of what it takes to write an extraordinary piece. There are some amazing young reporters. I'm not denigrating them. I mean, I'd say some of the best people working right now are in their late 20s, early 30s, but not everyone gets that kind of mentorship. And if you are at a blog, a pure internet play, a brand new startup that is just hustling to try to make money, you're definitely not getting that kind of mentorship that you would get if you were a young person at the New York Times. Here, it's probably worth talking a little bit about the differences in the business models. Could you just characterize what the model was, let's say, during the Watergate crisis and kind of like compare it to what we're looking at today? The thing to, to note about Watergate is there's like, and you pointed this out accurately, there were two newspapers that mattered. And actually in Watergate, that's a little bit earlier. Like the, the Washington Post actually wasn't the dominant newspaper in the Washington region. And that's why it was so important that they break the story. But say going on into the Pentagon Papers, the 80s, the 90s, the New York Times and the Washington Post have always been in a battle. And I'd actually say the Washington Post has always had a chip on its shoulder that the New York Times is bigger and globally more important. So there's always been this sort of newspaper war who can get it first. What I think has, has changed dramatically in the business model is 80s and 90s, there were multiple revenue streams. Revenue from syndication, which has now been stolen by Facebook and Google. Revenue from advertising, 
uh, which is, you know, people want to get best placement, pride of place in, in the print edition, and you can charge X number of dollars, you know, an obscene amount of money for a page in the newspaper. And then the, the third one being subscription. And because this is the only way in the 80s and the 90s that you could actually get information, everything from sports to obituaries to, to news, everyone in a metro area subscribed, even nationally. I would say that the, the problem with newspapers, and, and this has been well documented, is that they've lost syndication, they've lost advertising dollars, and subscriptions have been going down until very recently. If you are a newsroom, and I, you know, I think in the height of the newsroom in like 2000, 2001, at the Washington Post, New York Times, these were like 1500 person newsrooms. There were reporters that were dedicated to just covering Walmart. You know, like they, they would have one specific company beat and they would spend years on that beat. Institutional knowledge. So I'd say that the quality of the journalism was quite high. Uh, when I left the newsroom, there were 800 reporters. So, you know, nearly cut in half. And the vast majority of those people were people who were willing to work for basically nothing. Like, I like to joke that when I was at the Washington Post, I was actually like physically hungry um, <laughs> because, because I didn't make enough money to support like a lifestyle in a major city. If you have someone who cares about the job and loves the job that much, they're probably young. And so, you know, to the point of how the business model has changed, like it's been decimated. And the sorts of people who go into journalism now are aware that they're never going to be able to support themselves on a journalism salary unless they can become personalities, get the CNBC job, augment their income by appearing on multiple places on television every night, uh, write a book. Like you basically have to become a personality if you want to be able to live, uh, you know, a moderately successful life in journalism. And of course there's bleed. Anyone can become a personality online and increasingly what is the difference really between a journalist at MSNBC or a journalist at the New York Times? What is the difference between a media personality who is just kind of like a tech influencer and appears on all these, you know, squawk box or whatever else and has a bunch of opinions also about politics? Like increasingly, we're all kind of talking about the same stuff in the same media ecosystem, which is like Twitter. The commentariat class has just grown exponentially. And I think that's why I, you know, I'm really bullish on tech companies that are sort of supporting this independent model like Substack, you know, major journalists are now leaving their institutions because they realize not only can they make more money from their following elsewhere, but they also have independence, editorial independence. I think uh, Matt Taibbi from the Rolling Stone recently just, uh, uh, or from Rolling Stone recently just announced that he's leaving the platform and going completely on Substack more of a Ben Thompson model where it's like, I'm just going to have the people who love my writing subscribe to me and pay me. And I'm not going to have to deal with an editor. If I want to say something controversial, or if I want to decide when I think a story is ready to go to print, I can do that. I actually think this is a golden age of journalism. I think we're going to see a lot more divergent voices and people using these tech tools in order to monetize what they have to say. And that's a, a good thing. But what we're seeing between tech and major institutions, which I think will always be around and will always be powerful, is just the realization that they're not as necessary as they used to be. What was it about the 20th century that, that made these sort of mega news companies so vital for a writer? As opposed to, for example, I mean, you know, the founding. So like 1700s, 1800s even, you have all of these I mean, a media ecosystem that, that looks a lot like today, just all of these totally subjective newspapers popping up every other second, like wildflowers, just kind of constantly at war with each other. I mean, that's what we're back to. What was it about the 20th century specifically that forced this apparition? We had a mono narrative, which I think is really interesting. I'd say distribution was really important. Um, television as a technology was really important. And you had three channels. 
As you only had three channels on the major distribution and tech platforms, there became a mononarrative that people cared about. There's also a business element of this, these BMFs of advertising, which I, I'd actually say advertising is one of the largest reasons because you had, you know, the Macy's of the world wanting pride of place in institutions that um, were seen as sort of, you know, nonpartisan. Like they're putting forth a mono narrative and, you know, Macy's wants to advertise in something that's seen as non-controversial. And so that was sort of the winning platform. The major companies that had really sort of, you know, taken on this new age of ads, I think probably put forth paying the institutions that, that they wanted to, to see perform. And then there was a lot of buyouts of, of smaller publications. So the regional newspapers became very powerful. So what do you think is next specifically for, let's say, these legacy journalistic institutions? I'm bullish on the New York Times and the Washington Post actually doing quite well. And the reason for that is in a place where there's no mononarrative, you actually need a dominant narrative for people to criticize. The big secret of the Rush Limbaugh's of the world is that Rush Limbaugh has made more money off the New York Times than any New York Times journalist. Yeah, yeah absolutely. These institutions uh, have to exist for all of the counter narratives to be strong. And I actually think that's a great thing. I think we should have a multitude of voices, people criticizing each other, people sparring on Twitter and let people make decisions for themselves. But I think the New York Times and the Washington Post are going to benefit from that. My hope is that they will become strong enough to hire and, and start grooming domain experts again. I think when I was there and I'm like, perfectly honest about the fact that I was not like some all the president's men style journalist. There was just not enough mentorship. There was not enough money. Over the next 10 and 20 years, we might go back to high quality journalism at a few select institutions, but then have so many other great journalists who are operating independently and everyone just arguing about what the dominant narrative should be. Well, they're arguing now. It's not even the Wild West anymore. I mean, every single I would say month that goes by, I feel the vice grip tighten. Just in the context of COVID-19, you are now not allowed on YouTube to say anything that contradicts the World Health Organization, which has yeah. been wrong, what, for the last three months about really, 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 really important aspects yeah. of this virus. Um, that is, is one of the worst CEO decisions in tech in a very long time. And I think it will only take a few, you know, a few months before people really criticize and where there's a backtracking on that. But of course, she's doing it because that's what the media wants. That's what journalists want. Journalists have been pushing for this. Journalists are online defending the who. Journalists are online criticizing Trump and defending China. And it's like, yeah, you can criticize Trump. We should all be criticizing Trump. But I do not understand this idea that in order to criticize Trump, you have to defend places like China itself, the government of China. I think the media also throughout COVID-19 has really not has really not addressed any of its own errors and they were ample. While the New York Times was reporting some stuff that I thought was was pretty good, tech press, including tech press at the New York Times, and I'm including things that the reporters were saying on Twitter because I think you have to. It's part of the narrative. Tech press got it really wrong. We saw that famously in the sort of Kara Swisher versus Balaji, where yeah. her institution Recode tried to assassinate him publicly and A16Z and everybody else in tech who was worried about COVID-19. And then what, like three weeks later, had, I really believe that had the media just, it could do it now even. I think there's still time they could do it now. If they just said, hey, we got a lot wrong, like really deeply, tremendously wrong. Here are the things we got wrong. Let's talk about this one where, you know, Balaji's criticized for saying the virus is going to be a huge deal and we should take it seriously. Why did we get that wrong? Well, we got it wrong because we are making our money right now on a narrative that says tech people are crazy and bad. 
and we, we just got used to that narrative. And so we were blinded by that, by our own bias. We didn't do it on purpose. It was a mistake. We got this one wrong. We know why we got it wrong and we won't do it again. We're taking all of these measures to make sure that something like that does not happen again. But right now it's like they're just gaslighting us and they're saying, oh, well, we never did that. That story didn't even happen. People are making it up. We can see it. We, we were there. We were online. We watched it happen. They're telling us to our face that that's, that's not what happened, that, that yeah. they you know, acted perfectly. And they, again, were the morally righteous arbiters of truth. It's insane. And this is one of the things that has become obvious with COVID-19 and the tech press. To your point about the demographic of the tech press and more or less the lack of mentorship. What's very interesting about how major institutions have hired for tech is that journalists are by and large Luddites. They're proud of the fact that they're Luddites. That's why they missed the digital revolution. So all of the older people and newspapers basically are saying, we don't understand technology. We're just as tech illiterate as the people in Congress. Let's hire a bunch of young kids. The internet voice that every young person who covers tech grew up in is the blogging voice of snark. It is only one language, it's only one voice, and it's just snark. It's not serious both sides as you used to see in journalism. It is a snarking about subjects. It's a snarking that you would hear if you were inside the halls of a newsroom that people actually outside the newsroom shouldn't hear because it, it causes distrust in how journalists are covering. And so my biggest thing about the tech press is that this is the biggest story that the tech press has had to cover in 10 years. It's a global story. And they chose to cover it in the same snarky tone that they've used to cover board disputes. The style of people who are tech journalists and what they've come of age writing about does not match the enormity of a global pandemic. That I think is the reason why COVID-19 is this wake up call for people looking at the tech press and saying, you're snarking about Mark Andreessen saying, wash your hands. But like, actually you missed the big story because the snark is what you're selling. Right. Every well-known journalist in tech is snarky about technologists. That is not the same thing as the way the political press covers Washington. Like, Yeah, that's also, even I myself, I, I, I was kind of alluding to it earlier, how I, I assume that all media is equally bad, but it's not true. Even, you're right. Even the tone is much different. I mean, CNN is, I think, jumped the shark here somewhat, but there are plenty of journalists who still try their best to cover political sort of mechanics of Washington honestly. And even throw out the, the, like, there's a lot of snark around Trump. And I think Trump is sort of, you know, it's, it's a very different time. And we should look at that in context. But if you just look at the way the political press covered the Obamas in 2016, it was very different than the way the tech press is covering companies in 2016. These are very different types of people who go into journalism. They come from different worlds. One come from the blogosphere, the other come from like, great newspapers at their college and then work their way up through internships and then hope to get on a campaign. These are totally different ways of writing. And right. I think that's lost on a lot of people in Silicon Valley that there are, you know, the media is not the media. Like Caitlin Flanagan is a very different type of journalist than someone writing at TechCrunch. Right. This was always what <laughs> kills me. The tech press will do something just completely ridiculous and really indefensible. For example, the entire 
COVID, early COVID coverage. Then they'll be criticized and then they will retreat into their, ah, oh, tech people are just like Trump, always attacking the media. And it's like, wait a minute, you are nothing like the journalists you're saying you are. They retreat to the sort of, we're just speaking truth to power. And like Rico can write another 10 articles about how evil it is that Jack Dorsey is giving, you know, a billion dollars in charity, literally a billion dollars in charity. But, but I do, can I, because I'm a journalist, I, I do want to play both sides of this. <laughs> former journalist, <laughs> I can say, former journalist, but there is sort of a once a journalist, always a journalist sort of ideal. The thing that I've been noticing over the last few years, and I, I think you'll have a lot of opinions on this, Mike, there's a quality argument and there's a values argument. And I think they're actually getting intertwined. And, and I want to use an example, actually a couple examples. We'll, we'll start with Elon Musk. A lot of the people who are criticizing the media, particularly in the U.S., are people who grew up in places where there, there wasn't an enshrined First Amendment press freedom. So like Elon Musk, for example, grew up in Commonwealth countries. And if you look at the UK press regime, there is a very strong slander and libel law, like part of their common law. Powerful people can sue because the press says something horrible about them. We have very, very weak slander and libel law. And we have a very different way of journalists being protected than, say, people who, who grow up outside of the U.S. I was uh, in a conversation with a pretty well-known New York Times writer uh, and two venture capitalists who were from China. We were having a discussion about media culture and why tech press is so bad. And one of the VCs from China said, you know, we put out press releases all the time. Our companies are happy to give you a press release and tell you what's happening in the company. And you never write that. Like you never write that narrative. And I just, I, I was sympathetic to the journalist and I saw his face <laughs> just like, like his jaw drop. Like it, it was impossible for this VC to understand that a press release and that, you know, the version of propaganda that companies are putting out to the press could be questioned because in her culture, there is a mononarrative and there is no questioning of authority. What worries me is that I think there is this sort of fusion of, you know, there's a lot of people here in Silicon Valley who love the media, including myself, and are criticizing the quality argument and saying the quality has gone down. People are not practicing journalism as it is enshrined in the First Amendment. And we need strong press institutions because this is what makes our country unique. And I worry that there's a lot of people who are, you know, in Silicon Valley, they care about the capitalist element of American idealism, and they don't care about the First Amendment, they don't care about freedom of speech, they don't care about freedom of the press. They're just like, why are you even criticizing powerful people? The best thing that America has exported is the First Amendment of our Constitution. Like press freedom is something that is uniquely American, and the countries that are following it are following it because it is an American ideal. And my fear is that this fine line between criticizing the quality of journalism and criticizing the values of a free press give ammunition to autocrats and people who really just do not understand what makes this American institution but, so exceptional. First of all, I love the First Amendment. People often think that I hate the press and media because I criticize it so often. I don't hate media. I am obsessed with media. I love media. I'm obsessed with the way we tell stories and with telling stories myself. I, to a certain extent, maybe to a large extent, I think I'm actually part of the media at this point. I mean, I'm podcasting, I'm tweeting every day, like I'm engaging with the media. I'm, I'm a part of this, but they want increasingly to control the flow of information. They are constantly criticizing tech companies for being too open, for not banning enough content. I was just listening to a very well-known tech reporter 
who is turned VC on Clubhouse the other night. And he was going off about how Facebook is not censoring enough, right? And constantly sort of outlining this idea of the future where maybe this army of, of journalists, fact checkers are fact checking your grandfather's Facebook posts. Like that's who actually has the value of free speech here. And, and I, think I would that's argue the that, and that is antithetical to the First Amendment. And that's why I'm really excited about so many publications popping up and being enabled by technology. I think that's the only way we can move forward. Centralized distribution is actually the worst thing for society, not the best. So I, I'm 100% in agreement. What I worry is that there are a lot of opportunistic autocrats. I've even seen it coming out of China in COVID. Like you guys think yes. you have free speech? Like look how terrible your media is. Right. Like why do you even have a media? And so my worry is that the arguments are getting conflated. There is a very, very strong quality argument that the quality of media has gone downhill over the last 20 years. And I will argue that till the end of time. But I will defend the right of the press to operate as this very unique institution. And but it's not. That's what I'm saying is we are essentially just different tribes. The press is just an aesthetic and they're arguing for power. They want more power. I would argue that you and I are the press now. We can go on Substack, we can start a newsletter, and we are the press, and we are going to ultimately be protected by that unique First Amendment. I'm fine with that characterization of all of us sort of in, they are the press, I'm the press, we're all the press, but like, we're looking to sort of be like, oh, well, these people are serving this vital function, and yeah, they, once upon a time, that was perhaps true. Certainly, I wish we had the storybook version of journalism today. I watched all the president's men. I was like, damn, I, I wish we had press like that today. But what I think that we have is just everywhere. It's like struggles for power all the way down. I agree. Crazy autocrats are going to try and take control of this fog of war we're currently living in. I just don't agree at all that the average journalist cares about these things just based on their output and based on the kinds of things they're saying online every single day. It's like one of these journalists went off about why no one, this is really crazy, why no one in tech trusted him. And it's like, because we can read the things you're saying about us. Are you joking? We and know that- it's our prerogative as readers not to trust. Like that's, like, that's what I think is missing. Like it's our prerogative to choose whom we trust and what we read. And I do think, I mean, people think I'm crazy for saying this is like a media, you know, a golden time for media, but we are able to get more information, more viewpoints, more truth than we ever have. This is an extraordinary time. And yes, like our major institutions are weakened because people are arguing, but it is a great time to be a consumer of news because we can make our own decisions. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see people become much more comfortable with that. And that's a good thing. Unless we continue to see this trend of tech taking cues from the media, does censorship increase? Is there a push towards a mononarrative, once again, that can no longer be pushed by a few media companies, but that could absolutely be pushed by a few giant tech companies. If they internalize the ideals of the average journalist on Twitter, if they actually start listening to it, if we do see an army of New York Times fact checkers working at Facebook, working at Twitter, does that not change everything? Does that not actually just make impossible the sort of world you just outlined? I mean, that's why I'm excited to fund any early stage startup that's fighting against that. I mean, anytime that you have um, a rigorous clampdown on speech, 10 more startups pop up that people gravitate towards. Yes, it is, it is worrisome to see the major tech companies cave on certain issues. Um, we've talked a lot about the issues that, that they're caving on. It's not just media, it's everything from you know, working with government. There, there's a lot that the, the major companies have done wrong, but that's just an opportunity for early stage startups with different value sets to come forth and actually become much more powerful. On that, I, I really always used to believe as a libertarian that things like censorship were just 
impossible. Speech wanted to be free. Information wanted to be free. And you could try to censor people, but you would ultimately fail. And if you were in charge of the censorship, you would pay the price for that. And then technology happened. And I looked at a country like China, use technology to perfect totalitarianism. Censorship works incredibly well in China to the point where, I mean, you and I were just on a chat the other day with someone who was actually characterizing China as basically free, drawing parallels between their media ecosystem and our own. They, they've internalized the ideals of censorship. That's how completely all-encompassing that tech censorship environment is. I'm worried about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm deeply worried about it, but I think this is a question of will. There's a lot of people in Silicon Valley who care about the capitalist element of what it means to be American um, and not the values of America in terms of freedoms enshrined in the Constitution. We have to have the will to protect those values. If we don't care about those values anymore, if we only care about uh, making money and we only care about the capitalist element of the system, we won't have any of these freedoms. And so I think it's, it's making sure that the people building really care about protecting the values that make this country so unique. You are listening to Problematic, 